Schubert's Unfinished Symphony is unprecedented in many ways in terms of the history of symphonic literature, particularly at this time. The year he wrote it was 1822, the month was October. For a start, it's unfinished. What does that mean? We'll be exploring that in a little bit more depth a little bit later on. There are only two extant movements that we know with absolute surety form part, perhaps, or the whole, of his Eighth Symphony. Other music, which he started and then rejected, and then other music besides, which has cropped up in a completely different context that may or may not originally have been part of his conception. We'll discuss that later on. Also, the choice of key makes this piece very unusual. In 1822, it was almost unheard of for a symphony to be written in B minor, not least because the way that tuning worked in those days, they had what was known as unequal temperament, not the kind of equal temperament that we have now, where if you play the chromatic notes on a piano, you find every interval is exactly the same. Not so back in the early 19th century. And so B minor had a great deal of difficulties in order to make it sweet, to make it true. The other thing, and perhaps the most important thing of all, that makes this piece so unprecedented, as I say, in terms of symphonic literature, is its extraordinary use of contrast. There are shattering climaxes, pitted against an internalized, almost confessional softness. Violence versus childlike lyricism, you could say. What is clear, I think, to us today, just as much as it was in the early or mid-19th century, was that Schubert has an unmistakable voice. And I want to read you, just before we get into the first subject group now, what a critic called Edward Hanslick wrote at the first public performance of this symphony, over 40 years after it had been written in 1865 in Vienna, just to give us this sense of just how unmistakable Schubert's texture, his color, his use of melody was, even then. He says, When, after a few introductory bars, the clarinet and oboe began their gentle cantilena above the calm murmur of the violins, even every child recognized the composer, and a muffled Schubert was whispered in the audience. He'd hardly entered, but it seemed that one recognized him by his step, by his way of opening the door. Schubert endlessly finds opportunity for canons or imitation. So having heard that first theme, which you heard unmistakably there in the oboe and clarinet, he then immediately subjects it to canonic imitation with a third element, which is the first horn occurring a bar later. first little taste there of some of the kind of violence and passion which suddenly bursts through such an innocent, almost naive texture. He then at this point creates a bridge, paving the way for the second subject or theme. Out of nowhere, the first violent shock of the piece, the first really violent shock, the bassoons and horns hammer out a D, a unison D, and hold it, and time stands still. Then they move, and in one bar, we're suddenly in G major. It's like looking at the red sky, I think, blinking, and suddenly it's gone blue. Mm -hmm. 
dot, 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 you may say. A seraphic song-like melody. Just remember that Schubert was, without doubt, then and remains to this day, I think, the single greatest composer of songs. You'll have also noticed, I think, the syncopated accompaniment, which is in the woodwinds, which wraps us together with the tune in a kind of simple but poignant joy. Not a note of it is out of place. Now, it withers away at that point where we stop. We're left completely in a vacuum. We don't know where he's going to go next. I'm going to give you one admittedly rather crass example of where he might go next. Luckily, it's not actually where he goes next. I'm just going to play the, the bars leading into that, tailing off, which could suggest that we were going to G major. Have a listen. Thank goodness that's not what he does. But logically enough, he could have gone there because he's ended up with a D major dominant seventh chord, which suggests we're going to G major. But Schubert being the master of drama that he is, we go somewhere completely different. C minor. little syncopations you heard in the winds and then in the trombones particularly they've become like hammer blows the idea taken from that seraphic second subject they've now got a completely different color and nature to them now we're going to get a strange sense of are we going to modulate forwards are we going to get into the development but no actually Schubert wants to repeat the first section again so we've been in the sun as it were of G major for far too long B minor, B minor, B minor is near, near where we need to get back to, and that's indeed where it goes. So here's we go from the uh, woodwinds canon figure. Now, let's um, not do the, the uh, repeat of the exposition for now. We'll get on into the development. And he finds, very dramatically, suddenly, us in E minor. And we get that same introductory motif that we had right at the beginning of the piece, which is now going to form the basis of this whole development section. Just listen to how it sounds, how differently it sounds when it's voiced in a different key. It had been in that dark B minor. Now it's pitched slightly higher because it's in E minor, and it has a completely different quality. goes down to the lowest point in the piece.
And you hear that little throbbing syncopation there in the winds. That's been divorced completely from how it was originally alongside the seraphic melody that the cellos had at the beginning of the second subject. So that mysterious, dark opening motif of the piece has become now thundering and oppressive. And you'll hear the trombones, the cellos and the basses take it on. It's as blazingly hot as some of those last fugal entries in the last movement of Mozart's Jupiter Symphony. So then we get the third and fourth bars of that introductory theme, and everyone's riffing on it, all the possibilities that it might throw out. just by way of an experiment to reveal something to you about the kind of um, conversation that we must naturally have as a modern orchestra when we play music of this period, music of the early 19th century. A particular question mark always revolves around the timpani. Should the timpanist play with wooden-headed sticks? Because that's exactly what would have been used in, in Schubert's lifetime. Or should he play with modern equivalent, which are wrapped in felt, quite hard, but not with the same kind of very percussive hit to the sound. I'm going to ask now, principal timpanist of BBC Philharmonic, Paul Turner, if he'll play with wood for a minute. And we'll just check that out. You get the idea, there's something additional which wooden heads give. But then, if you decide to use wooden heads, where do you stop? You perhaps should ask all the stringed instruments to re-string their instruments with gut and for the woodwind instruments as much as possible to use actually instruments of the day or modern reproductions. And then suddenly the BBC Philharmonic is a period band, which clearly, looking at them here, they are not. So we'll now put back the felt-headed sticks and hear it how we like it here. Now, I'm just going to play you the material leading into the recapitulation, the restatement of the ideas. You get this extraordinarily held and poignant little duet between the first flute and the first oboe, taking us over the bridge, back into B minor, but specifically not back into the introductory theme. After all, Schubert spent the whole of the development working over that particular music. He wants to get us straight back into the first subject proper and then the second subject proper. The introductory motif will recur when we get to the coda. Thank you. You get the idea of that. Just to show you that Schubert is always one to continue developing. It's not like his recapitulation will just be a carbon copy of what has happened in the exposition. He's always going to be adding more to it. And here's a little extension he makes, an extra couple of bars beyond what happened the first time round. Thank you. 
and so on. And you'll have probably heard that it's now the first oboe and not the first horn that is doing that little delayed canon figure off the main theme. Now I want to play you once again that bassoon and horn coup de théâtre, time standing still. Remember it was a D before, now it's on an A. And you'll notice that when they come out of it, this time they have a swell written into the figure which turns the corner in to D major. It's quite interesting that he puts a swell here on music which is exactly the same as what happened the first time round. Proof positive, I think, that Schubert was not someone who looked back when he was writing his recapitulation. He did it from memory. So some of the phrasings are different, some of the dynamic markings are different. All to the good, in my view. Once again, there's further development by way of instrumentation. You know, there were violas and clarinet doing that pulsating syncopated rhythm underneath this second subject. Now it's flutes and clarinet. Now I want to play the music just leading into that so-called withering away, that time standing still moment where the orchestra just kind of drains, all of its color drains out. There's a silence and then you get that tremendously dramatic chord. Just to show you once again how he's extended it because he's got more modulating to do. there's that extension. Finally, the introductory motif is back in its original form. So much more potent for Schubert, I suppose, having held it back right until this coda. And once again, the whole coda, like the development section, is drenched in it. All other themes or considerations are abandoned, forgotten. And those three woodwind chords you hear there, you get a perfect little preview of the final three doom-laden chords of the movement. Just carrying on from there now, you'll hear these mournful, almost broken clarion calls that the strings have, and then they're answered by the clarinets and bassoons.
So, not classical sonata form exactly as we know it. The introductory theme plus a first and second subject grouping, but the development section all based on the introduction, then the recap minus the introduction until the coda. You know, people used to write off Schubert as an undisciplined composer for whom form meant little. Well, you can see he's using form for a greater dramatic impact, to tell a greater story. We look now at the second movement. A real case of Schubertian sun and warmth emerging through the dark clouds of B minor into this perfect little E major movement. It's in extended ternary form. Now, basic ternary form is you have theme A, theme B, theme A comes again. Extended ternary form means that you get A, B, A, B, A. So basically, it just gives Schubert even more room for melodic and harmonic development. Let me show you, first of all, what the principal bassoon, the first bassoon has in the first three bars of this, a perfect link with the last three chords that we heard at the end of the previous movement. The same, effectively, the same notes, just in a different key. Complete connection, you may say. We'll put it all together now, and you hear that uh, the bassoons and the horns have this miraculous swell effect in the second bar, which the basses mirror. They respond to it as they work their way down through their pizzicato scale. So, that's the first major theme of this movement. Less a tune, I think you might say, per se, as a harmonic contextual halo in sound. Now, we get the same material again shortly thereafter. It's starting to use it as bridging material now. And you'll notice there are no swells this time. It's the quietest it's been yet, and it provides, as I say, a bridge to the second subject. at the softest place yet. Now, you could say that that is a classic Beethovenian theme. It's not really a tune, again, like the first subject. It's all actually about color, implied harmony, and texture. The syncopated accompaniment in the upper strings is a direct link with the second theme of the first movement. Everything comes from the same fundamental root. So the theme transfers to the oboe now, and it has the cellos in a kind of counter-subject to it. Most natural 
and simple idea possible, and yet utterly effective. There's nothing clever, clever about Schubert. He's looking for a purer form of utterance, I think, all of which makes him, at heart, a classical-era composer rather than a romantic. So if the second theme was, in its first instance, like a kind of small bonfire, Schubert just suddenly throws a whole can of petrol on it. Each note of this theme now made extra potent, particularly in the second phrase, because you get extra sforzandos, hard hits in the horns, the trumpets, the trombones, and a hemiola-type counter-subject in the violins and the flutes. Just to be clear what hemiola is, the idea of hemiola is in this section of music, we're in 3-8, so three quavers to the bar, hemiola, Figuration gives you the idea of actually putting 3-4 over the top of bars of 3-8. So if that is your 3-8 pulse, 1, 2, 3, a hemiola would go 1, 2, 3. You see what it does? Extends the tension, extends the breadth of potential within the phrase. <laughs> that syncopated music at the end of that, the almost unbearably shy second subject accompaniment has been hijacked and turned into something incredibly brazen. Now, when the second subject comes back, it is this time in A minor, and it's more naked and sad than the previous version in E minor. Of course, it's pitched lower. If you imagine E minor, a chord on the piano, and then go down rather than up to the A minor. And also, this time, it's played on the oboe rather than the clarinet. show you another example of how Schubert clearly when he wrote like a recapitulation section or the re-emergence of a theme that's been earlier in the piece that he did it always from memory I'm sure he never looked back something that Mozart did as well as a result you get all sorts of wonderful discrepancies in the way things are phrased or the kind of dynamics that are used let me give an example the clarinet has a phrase which at this point in the movement this is the same music as we had before but it's phrased over two bars when it comes much earlier in the piece, in the exposition, the oboe has it, and it's phrased in one-bar sections. And I'll just ask now Colin Pownall, our principal clarinet, to play the two different ways with this, just so you can hear the difference. So that latter one is the way it occurs the first time round, and the former one is the way it occurs at this point 
in the piece. So out of that dwindling nakedness, which follows just after that clarinet writing, here more than ever before, because now we're in A minor, we get a sense of the contrast, of the violence, which is intrinsic to Schubert's character as a composer. And it always makes me think, this particular moment in the piece, of that amazing line from Yeats's poem, The Second Coming, when he says, what rough beast, its hour come round at last, slouches towards Bethlehem to be born. You get the sense really that within Schubert's very classical sensibility, there is a latent romantic darkness and power. You might say there's high energy consumption on his main frame. Now, what follows that section, again, he's extending, he's extending. Tremendous use, once again, of structural time, just like Beethoven at the same time and Mozart before them. He must broaden somehow the sense of pulse, even though obviously the pulse doesn't actually slow down, in order to create the right sense of anticipation for the final reappearance of the first theme. <laughs> gone just beyond that to where we get that uh, first violins bridge which almost peters out it's very interesting because it's uh, in its first instance this bridge we're about to play is used to make way for the second subject here it makes way for almost a sense of stasis again of time standing still the first violins end up on a C natural which now becomes the third for an A flat major chord in the winds to this shift. So on that last note of that last first violin bridge, we might call it, the third is flattened at the end of what was an A-flat major arpeggio. So you get a C-flat, which of course is a B by any other name, which now acts as the fifth of a chord of E major, which is what the winds enter with. Both times, in a way, the note at the end of the bridge, the first time and the second time, is a kind of pivot point around which fresh tonality can be applied. Extraordinary harmonic sleights of hand at every point in this piece. And the movement closes with a kind of, I suppose, warm calm. If composition is a form of therapy, then you get the sense that Schubert has expressed everything he needs to express. Now, I want to move on and just show you or discuss with you and play a little bit of 
two pieces of music which can claim potentially some connection with these other two movements we've been workshopping. First of all, Schubert wrote 20 bars fully orchestrated of a scherzo, a prospective third movement. He stopped dead in his scoring at the end of the 20th bar, which is what, exactly what we're going to do in a minute, just to show you exactly where the maestro laid down his pen. He then wrote out a piano score, like a short score, for a further 112 bars. But I think it became very clear to him very quickly that this music didn't sit in the complete context and unity of the first two movements. Well, do you see what you think? Now, Schubert started and finished a fair number of pieces at this time, but he also started and didn't finish quite a number of others, including a number of piano sonatas, and in fact, a big oratorio on the subject of Lazarus. And remember, he had sketched the whole of his previous symphony, the one before this. Every bar of it sketched out, but not all of it by any means filled in. So it was something which happened quite commonly to Schubert, for all manner of reasons. Now, I mean, whatever you may make of those 20 bars scored, it seems to me that they don't fit with the approach that we see in the first two movements to symphonic thought, the incorporation of song elements and so forth, it's not quite settled. You know, there's a sense that it, it lacks the absolute conviction that the first two movements have had. You could say it's a bit like a sort of weighty pastiche of Haydn. Sorry, Schubert, for saying that. Now, to look on to what might or might not be actually the last movement of this work, a year later, that is in 1823, Schubert wrote music for a play called Rosamunde, and the first entract which occurs in the score for that play is in B minor. It's in a grand scheme. It's exactly the same scoring, exactly the same orchestration as the symphony. So for people who like completeness in these things, this could very viably be the last movement, the finale to Schubert's Eighth Symphony. We'll play you about the first 16 bars. <laughs> So just playing those opening few bars of the on-track music number one from Rosamund of 1823, you get the picture. It could so neatly fit into the scheme of his Eighth Symphony. Same key, same scoring, same kind of grand style. But beyond that, what kind of relationship does it have to the piece as a whole? How much thematic integration is lacking if you tack this piece on to the end of a performance of the symphony? All I'm clear of is that the first movement and the second movement, the two movements which survive as Schubert's Eighth Symphony, are the most finished, unfinished symphony I know. Questions? Schubert wrote his compositions when the time of music was changing from classical to romantic. Do you think this piece is more romantic than classical, and if so, why? For me, this piece is without doubt coming from the stable of high classical music. He's still very much within the tradition that he'd inherited from Mozart and Haydn and the tradition that he shared, if you like, 
with Beethoven. Now, both Beethoven and Schubert are interesting to look at side by side because they both went in slightly different directions. You can feel in both of them a sort of latent romanticism which is bursting to get out a kind of bigger, higher-octane engine, if you like, within their musical personalities. I think you get elements of that, and I hope we've expressed them clearly through our workshop of these two movements. But essentially, it all comes from within, deep down, a classical sensibility. Which of the two movements do you prefer, the first or the second? Me personally? Yeah. I think probably the first movement, because to me, I'm a great one for keys. Some people get really annoyed with me when I go on and on about keys, because some people think that there's no truth in the idea that different keys have different characteristics. To me, they absolutely do. B minor has a particularly kind of naked, at times desolate, but sort of very inner quality to it. And so the way that that opening motif just emerges from the cellos and basses in the way that that is the hallmark, the trademark of the piece's whole, notwithstanding the other two great themes which are contained in it. Somehow there's a kind of a unity of symphonic conception, a kind of through line of white-hot inspiration, which paves the way forward to even great 19th century romanticists, romantic symphonists like Mahler. Right, ladies and gentlemen, well, without further ado, the BBC Philharmonic and their leader, Andrew Wharton, and I will now perform for you the two complete movements which make up Schubert's unfinished symphony.